All right, Matthew chapter six, if you've got your Bible. Thank you, Miss April. Um, we are going to jump in, and uh, if you are joining us, uh, maybe for the first time in a while or for your first time ever, um, we've been walking verse by verse through the Sermon on the Mount. So we've been in Matthew 5 already. Uh, we are making our way through chapter 6, and then we will um, be in chapter 7 as well in a few weeks. But uh, let me catch you up where we've been, because um, I know I don't want you to be in the dark of where we've been. Um, we've been walking through the greatest sermon ever recorded. Uh, Jesus himself preached the sermon. He preached it to believers. And um, we've been walking through it. And chapter five, and not even chapter five, the entire sermon is about your heart. Um, Jesus is not after your behavior here. He's after the motives of your heart. He's after the meditations of your heart. He's after the morality of your heart. Um, we see this early on. Jesus spends the first 12 verses of the sermon in Matthew 5 talking about um, who his true followers are in heart, right? That we're poor in spirit, that we're spiritually bankrupt. Like the only way to be worthy of the gospel is to recognize that you're completely unworthy of it. That's the good news is you don't have to do anything. You don't have to work for it. You don't have to earn it. You just have to realize that you don't deserve it. And then you're ready to receive it, right? We're spiritually bankrupt. We bring nothing to the table. We're poor in spirit that we mourn over our sin. We mourn over our rebellion. But the good news of the gospel is God moves towards sinners and people who rebel and, you know, the, a wretch like me, that God in his grace moved towards us and we hunger and we thirst for righteousness, right? We need a righteousness that's not our own and God freely gives it to us in the gospel. And Jesus keeps on just describing who his followers are in heart, not what they do with their hands, but what they believe in their heart. And then he moves into what we do. Based on what he's done in our hearts, here's how we live. We shine like lights, we're the light of the world. The people see our good deeds and they'll glorify our Father in heaven, that we're called to do good works amongst one another and God gets the glory for those and we're the salt of the earth that as we proclaim the gospel, as we preach and as we teach and as we live out the gospel and share the gospel with our neighbors and our coworkers, that it produces more hunger and more thirst for God in this community, in your workplace, on your street, that you would be the salt of the earth, creating more hunger and more thirst for God as you live your life. And then Jesus moves into these common teachings of the Old Testament around murder, around adultery, around divorce. And the Pharisees, shows you they were all about the externals, had reduced obedience to God's law down to these external actions, right? I'm righteous because I haven't murdered anybody, I haven't committed adultery, I haven't done all these things. So therefore I'm righteous. And Jesus says, no, 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 you've missed it. You are not righteous in your heart. You need a righteousness that is greater than the scribes and the Pharisees. The kingdom of God is not just that we don't kill each other, right? It's not the beauty of the kingdom. The beauty of the kingdom is that there's no murder, there's no hatred, there's no envy, all of those things, right? The, the thing that we love about heaven, apart from Jesus being there, is that there won't be any of this jealousy and bitterness and rivalry and envy. There won't be... Um, you know, not just physical adultery, but there won't be any emotional adultery with one another in our thoughts and in our heart and spiritual adultery and all of those things, right? And the beauty of following Jesus is we don't have to wait till then to experience kingdom living. We can have that now. That by the Holy Spirit, you and I can start to obey and to live these things out where we would not just be righteousness or not just be righteous in our deeds with our hands, but righteous in our hearts. And positionally, in the gospel, God has made us righteous. And now from that, we live out this new righteousness that he's given us. 
um, in our hearts. So Jesus is taking these externals and getting to the heart of the matter. No, it's not just that you don't commit adultery. It's that you stop looking at each other with this, like we're commodities and this, this, this desire to use someone for your pleasure. That's what he's after. And physical adultery, obviously. But he's getting to the heart of all of these matters. And then Jesus turns the corner in chapter six to kind of catch you up where we are now. Jesus goes from chapter five, which is all about just the morality of our hearts, to chapter six, you know, here's the don't do these things in your hearts. And now he's gonna take the things that we're called to do as believers and get at, go from the morality of our hearts to the motive of our hearts, right? There's two types of people that lift their hands in worship. One is trying to earn righteousness and one is raising their hands because they know they already have it freely given in Christ. Two different motives. You see the difference? And he's gonna talk about giving like we talked about last week. He's gonna talk about praying and he's gonna talk about fasting and we'll look at those today. But he's gonna take these common Christian practices and get down to the motive of our hearts. There's a right motive to pray with and there's a wrong motive to pray with. As we saw last week, there's a right motive in which we are generous to the people around us and generous to this church, and there's a wrong way, right? If you're living for the praises of men, if you're trying to earn righteousness by your generosity, then you've missed it. And Jesus talks about our motive and our reward here. Um, so we talked about giving last week, but if you look at chapter six, I want you to see this for yourself. I mentioned this last week. The thesis or like the header statement of chapter six, one through 18 is verse one. He's going to take verse one, Jesus is this main idea, and he's gonna apply it to these three sections, to giving, to praying, and to fasting. And verse one says this, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. So he's gonna take this idea, and he's gonna apply it to giving like he did last week. Don't practice your giving before men in order to be seen by them, right? So we don't give so people will be impressed with us, and we don't give because we think people are gonna criticize us. It's living and giving for the praises of men. We don't do those things. That's not the motive in which we are generous to the people around us. We don't do it for our own approval. And we talked about that last week. I don't even need you around to, to sin and to, to be generous in the wrong way. My left hand will applaud what my right hand is doing. I feel this all the time. See somebody in need, right, at an intersection, give him some money, and then I, I start living for my own approval. Man, I'm awesome, aren't I? Like, I'm just so glad. I bet he's really glad that I exist today and that I follow Jesus. And I start just living for my own approval. Like, I don't even need you for my heart to, to wander and to rebel and to get wicked and sinful. That I approve of my own generosity. And Jesus says that we shouldn't live for other people's approval and we shouldn't even live for our own approval. That we have an audience of one. And the question this morning is which audience matters most to us? Which audience matters most when you're praying? Which audience matters most when you're giving? Which audience matters most when you're fasting? As we talk about prayer this morning, um, about 11 years ago or so, I guess 2011, um, I had the privilege of going on a mission trip to Kenya. Um, we went to this village called Karagoto, Kenya, um, outside of Nairobi, and an uh, incredible privilege um, from the generosity of people in our church and my parents and others and uh, what was crazy about, I mean, God did lots of things on the trip, but one of the things that I remember very vividly um, was getting to Nairobi was a series of flights. Like we flew to Ethiopia and then we flew from Ethiopia over to Nairobi and then we took a bus ride for 
you know, the distance was about an hour, but it took like six hours to, to drive an hour's distance with all the, the chaos of, of travel there and those kind of things. And I remember uh, just being so tired. And we get to, to Kenya, we get to the hotel. It's like two in the afternoon, and my youth pastor, um, God love him, was trying to give us instructions after just a day and a half of what it felt like of flights. And I, we're all just kind of dozing off and falling asleep. And I legitimately fell asleep during like our instructional meeting. And he could tell we were all tired. So he just sent us back to our rooms and was like, hey, we'll talk about all this tomorrow. You know, go take a nap. We'll talk about it later tonight kind of thing. And I end up going to sleep around 2.30 and I wake up at like 2.30 in the morning. And if we had a meeting that night, I missed it. Um, but I remember being wide awake, you know, barely even seeing Kenya in the daylight, and it's pitch black, and I'm hearing Kenya outside my window that's just kind of a hole with some bars in the wall, and, um, you know, what do I do? I've got seven hours, and I'm, I've got a full night's rest. Like, I'm energized. I'm ready to go, and I'm like, what in the world do I do? So I, like, start getting my clothes out of my bag and folding them and putting them away, and then I guess I'll unfold them and fold them again and make them look nicer and like making paper airplanes with my journal paper and those kind of thing, like see how far the room I can throw this. And I remember very vividly, and it wasn't audible, it wasn't anything like that, but I just remember like deep in my heart, like it was almost as if things got quiet, I was finally alone with my own thoughts and it was almost as, as if God was like, all right, are you gonna deal with me now? You know? Like I've, I've done so many things. I've tried so many things in the course of an hour at 2.30 in the morning in Kenya and God was finally like, hey, are you gonna talk to me now? Like, are you gonna pray to me? Are you gonna spend time with me? And uh, so I, I tried, right? I'm 18 years old and I'm you know, praying for my family and for the mission trip and for our city and for the globe and like 12 minutes went by. And I just remember that morning, middle of the night, whatever you wanna call it, just resolving in myself, like, I want to be a man of prayer. And I knew I wasn't there, and I would be lying to you if I said I'm there now. Like, I am a work in progress. But praise God, I'm not where I used to be. Um, but at the same time, I think there's some of that in all of us, that we realize um, that before we even get to the motive of our prayers, um, we just need to pray more. We need to pray very frequently. We need to pray a lot more often than we pray. Some of you, if you are honest with yourself, you're like, you know what? I don't know if I'm where I wanna be in my own prayer life. And I think there's a lot of room for all of us to grow here this morning, which is why I share that story. And the good news is that Jesus has a lot to say about prayer. In fact, if you wanna look at the real estate of these sections, prayer, Jesus gives the most amount of verses and time dedicated to prayer in this section. So there's three on giving and there's, Three on fasting, I think, and the rest are all about prayer. So let's look at what he has to say. Look at uh, Matthew 6, verse 5. He says this, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. And this sounds great at first, right? For they love to pray. When you pray, don't be like them, for they love to pray. They love to stand there. They love to pray. But then he says this. If you keep going, he says, that they may be seen by others, right? And that's their motive, that they may be seen. They want to be seen. They love to be seen. Essentially, they love themselves, right? And it's easy to point fingers at the Pharisees, but I would argue this, I'm still arguing this, that there's way more Pharisee in me than I want to admit, and there's way more Pharisee in you than I think you would probably want to admit. 
right? That there's this temptation in us. My heart is so prone to wander and so wicked that I can take a good thing. I could take the very thing that was designed to give praise to God and use it to get praise for myself, right? John Stott says, there's nothing that kills prayer like the side glance of a human audience. Anybody ever been in that situation where you're in a prayer circle or you're praying with somebody and you look up and you see people and then suddenly your mind just starts going to performance, right? Like, I don't want them to think I'm dumb. You know, I need to, I, you stop listening to them pray and you just start trying to memorize your own prayer. Like, I'm gonna pray for this, I'm gonna pray for this, I'm gonna pray for this, right? And it's all just to perform for men. It's just so that you can survive this moment and people think you're smart, right? And I pray with professional Christians on a regular basis. And I feel this, right? Let's see how many Bible verses I can drop in this prayer so that they think that I read my Bible a lot more than I actually do. We can very, all it takes is one glance up, right? And then suddenly our prayer is like the intimacy and the honesty is dead. And then it's performance from here on out. People are watching and I'm gonna survive this moment and I want them to think I'm smart and that I love Jesus, so I'm gonna perform. Nothing kills prayer like just a little glance of a human audience. And Jesus is gonna talk about that in just a minute. But he's getting at the motives of our hearts. In fact, the word hypocrite there, we talked about this last week, Greek term, combination of the, ter- the prefix hupo and then kritai, which just means like to answer back or to call back. Um, the word prefix hupo means under. So if you put those together, it's to answer out from under or to call out from under. And this was actually a theater term in the first century. So back then there wasn't, you know, movies and high definition cameras where if you were acting, you could see people's faces. So what they would do is they would put on these creepy little masks. So when they were acting and the scene was happy, they would have this big happy face on. And then when they were sad, they would put on this big sad face on. And that's how you would act in the first century. And what Jesus is saying here, that's where we get the word hypocrite from. It's you're speaking out from under a mask. That these hypocrites, they were speaking out from under this mask of praying to God and a relationship with God when really what they wanted was praises from men. And their mask was that I love God and I wanna commune with him and talk with him, but really I just love myself and I want you to love me too. And I think if we're honest, there's a lot more of that in us. There's a lot more of that in me than I want to admit to you from this platform this morning. And boy, is that line blurry. I can slip into that so quickly. And all it takes is when I'm praying for me to look up at one of you. And then my goal is now to impress you and not to be honest with God. But there's so much of that, more of that in us than we wanna realize. And in fact, the mask that they would put on, it was actually called a fake. It's where we get the word facade from. So all of us, that we have this temptation to speak out from under this fake perception of what we want people to believe about us and think about us. And what's really underneath that is, man, I just wanna be seen. I just want people to be impressed with me and applaud me and approve of me. And we go and do these things looking for righteousness instead of from the righteousness that we already have in Christ. And that's what Jesus is getting at. Don't pray like the hypocrites. Why? For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners so that they may be seen by others. And what does Jesus say? God in his infinite wisdom gives them their reward and he will give you your reward. If the motive of my heart is to impress you this morning, then God says, I'll give it to you. I'll give you the praises of men. If that's what your heart really wants, then I will give you your reward. And the verb there means paid in full. 
presently. Like that's it. Don't expect any future reward for that good deed. If you, if you do this for man's approval, guess what? I'll give you man's approval. You can have it. If that's what you're really wanting, if that's what your heart's desiring, then I will give it to you. And what's crazy about that is, man, will we sacrifice heavenly, eternal reward for this earthly, fleeting, here one minute, gone the next, approval of men, right? Happy with you today, upset with you tomorrow. Love you today, hate you tomorrow. But that's, Jesus says, I'll give it to you if that's what you want, if that's your reward. He says, they have received, paid in full, at that present time, their reward. They've received it. We take this practice that was designed to glorify God and we use it to glorify ourselves. Jesus is gonna tell us how we pray. In verse six, he says this, but when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will will reward you. Now, before I tell you kind of what Jesus is saying here, I wanna guard against this like hyper-literal interpretation where every time you pray, you have to run away from people and lock your door and you're not allowed to pray in public. Um, That's not what Jesus is getting at here. He's not saying every single time you pray, you must be in a room, you must shut the door and you have to be by yourself. Um, Jesus prayed multiple times in public in front of people. James calls us in James 5 that we're supposed to confess our sins to one another and pray for one another in the context of the local gathering so that we will be healed. There's lots of commands in Scripture for us to pray publicly. So Jesus isn't like, you know, forbidding that. He's not saying that is sinful. Um, But what he is saying, and I want to say this, um, he's not condemning public prayer, but here's a good litmus test um, for all of us. And I had to swallow this pill this week. Um, If the majority of my prayers, and if the majority of your prayers, if the majority of the times that you pray are in the public setting, the public sphere, if that's at a Bible study when someone calls on you, if that's when your family's around and you're praying before dinner, if those are the only times you pray, then there's a good chance that your prayer life is solely to win the approval of others and not from the approval of God and to spend intimate time alone with God. If the majority of the time, if the only time you're praying is publicly, then there's a good chance that your prayer life right now is, is the, the goal is just that you would keep up the reputation, keep up the, the, the approval of the praises of men. The majority of our prayer life should not be in public. And I would argue, in fact, when you begin to pray privately, public prayer will take care of itself. But Jesus is getting after here that the majority of our prayers, yes, we're called to pray as a church. Yes, we're called to pray in public. Yes, we're called to pray for one another. All of those things. It's good for you to pray here. It's good for you to pray as a family. It's good for you to pray as a couple. All of those things. But the majority of our prayer life should be in those moments where we're alone with God and we shut the door of life's distractions, of our commitments, of all the things going on, and we spend time alone with one audience. And it's not anybody else, but it's the God of the universe. That should be the majority of our prayer life, this intimate time with God. We shut the door of the pressure of other people watching. We shut the door of the temptation to impress others. We remove ourselves from that opportunity to look up and see people and then stop being honest and just start performing. 
But the majority of our prayer life should be honest, open communication with God himself. That's what Jesus is getting at. When we pray, as we pray, that we would be regularly, we would be alone with God. And that's the essence of prayer, right? It's to seek God. It's to spend time with God. We'll talk about it today, but Jesus's model of prayer essentially tells us um, that the goal of prayer isn't to, to say the right words and you know, pull the right levers so that we get the thing that we want. But it's to spend more time with God. It's to be with God. It's to conform our hearts to God's. That's the goal of prayer, is more intimacy with God, not more stuff. If our view of prayer is just, I need to say the right words and pull the right levers so that God will give me what I want, then what we really want isn't God. It's, what, it's, it's the thing we're trying to get from him, right? It's, no, no, thanks, God. I just want something else in this world for you to give me. And Jesus is going to show us through this example that that's not the goal of prayer. So he says this. Here's another warning. Verse seven, when you pray, don't heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Now, when he says Gentiles there, um, you and I, technically, if you're in the room here um, and not Jewish of origin, you would be a Gentile. Um, the word Gentile there is the word ethnos in the Greek. It's where we get the word ethnicity from. And what Jesus is saying here is from the first century Jew perspective, um, if you weren't Jew, if you weren't a, a Jewish person, you were a part of the nations. You were part of the ethnos, the ethnicities. Uh, the word ethnos there in Greek means Gentiles and it means nations. You were a part of the nations. You were either a part of God's chosen people or you were a part of all the other nations. And what Jesus is talking about here, he's saying don't pray like these pagan nations, these unbelieving Gentiles who worship these pagan gods. So he's talking about Greek gods, Roman gods, Egyptian gods. He's saying, don't pray like these Gentiles. And what do they have to do? You have to heap up these empty phrases and try to be as impressive as you can so that your deity, your God, <clears throat> will see you and will do something on your behalf because you've impressed them. You've gotten their attention, right? You've won them over. This was how pagan worship existed. You scratch your God's back and then he'll scratch yours, right? You've got to go and do something. You've got to be smart enough, impressive enough. You've got to win over your God and then he'll act on your behalf. And Jesus is saying, don't pray like that. We're not praying to pagan gods. You don't have to just pray over and over and over again and ask over and over and over again and use all these impressive words and these empty phrases to try to sound smart enough for your God to do something for you. In fact, we see this in 1 Kings chapter 18. Um, and in 1 Kings 18, you might not know the reference, but you probably know the story. Um, <clears throat> King Ahab was married to Jezebel, and Jezebel comes in and essentially starts cutting off the prophets of Israel and starts condoning and endorsing um, pagan worship, worship to pagan gods. And then Elijah shows up and says, hey, let's have a showdown, right? You build an altar, you take a bull, you put it on the altar, you pray to the prophets of Baal, you pray to your God and I'll build an altar, I'll put a bull on the altar and I'll pray to Yahweh and let's see whose God answers the prayer. And you can read about this in 1 Kings 18, but the prophets of Baal, 450 of them and then 400 prophets of Asherah show up, they build an altar, they put the wood on the altar, they put the bull on the wood and then scripture says that they spend all morning 
hours and hours heaping up phrases to these pagan gods, trying to win them over. Be impressed with us. You know, we're trying to do good enough where you'll finally do something for us. We're trying to scratch your back so you'll scratch ours. And then what gets crazier than that is they see it's not working and they take out their swords and their lances and they start like stabbing each other and slicing each other, thinking that that's gonna draw more attention to Baal and that he'll see them and then he'll, okay, blood has been shed. Now I'll act on your behalf. And they just start acting crazy. And then it says they go until the night. They just keep up heaping phrases. And Elijah starts taunting them. I don't know if that's the, you know, I don't think that's prescriptive that we need to start taunting, you know, people that don't worship God. But Elijah starts doing that. And then Elijah shows up, takes 12 stones, one for each tribe of Israel, puts them in a kind of this circle and builds an altar, puts the wood in the altar, puts the bull on the wood, and then tells these men to get four jars of water and to pour the water all over the altar. And then he says, do that two more times. So four jars, three times, dumping water on the altar to the point where inside this circular altar of stones is just full of water. The bull's wet, the wood's wet, and then Elijah prays one short prayer. God, defend your name. God, show these people who you are. And fire comes down from heaven and the bulls burnt up, the woods burnt up, the waters burnt up and the stones burnt up and nothing's left over. And this is what Jesus is getting at. That you and I, we don't have to try to impress the God of the universe with our prayer. The goal is honesty. The goal is not to impress him. The goal is intimacy. Not to try to, you know, adhere to a magic formula. God wants your heart. It's the message of the entire sermon. He's after our hearts. Jesus tells this parable later on in the Gospels of these two men praying in the temple. One of them is poor and doesn't have anything, and he shows up to the temple and he says, be merciful to me, O God, a sinner, right? And then the other one, a Pharisee who has all the pleasures of the world, says, dear God, thank you that I'm not like this person. And I don't act like that and I don't look like that and I don't talk like that. And it's like, which prayer do you think God wants to hear and loves? The brokenhearted prayer of a brokenhearted man or woman. That's what he's after. He's after honesty. We don't have to heap up these phrases to try to impress him. Why? He tells us in the next verse, do not be like them for your father knows what you need before you ask him. We don't have to try to impress him. He already knows what we need. We don't have to try to win over his approval. If you're in Christ, you already have it. And he already knows what you need. So you and I, we can be honest with God in prayer. We can get straight to the point with God in prayer. Now, is Jesus condemning long prayers? No. Is Jesus condemning repeating yourself in prayer? No. Mark 14, Jesus repeats himself in prayer. And he went away and prayed, saying the same words that he did the first time. Right? Jesus prayed the same words over again, but his goal wasn't to impress God. He was just so burdened by what he was going through that he continued to seek the Lord with it in prayer. And you and I can do that. He's not condemning that. He's condemning this idea that you and I would just keep repeating things and throwing up these phrases that we don't know what they mean and they sound you know, religious and spiritual and Christian and all those kind of things, pastoral, just to try to impress God. You say, you don't have to do that. Your heavenly father knows what you need. He already knows. 
God is not ignorant that you and I need to inform him. And God is not hesitant that you and I need to persuade him. But what's so crazy about prayer is the God that knows everything we need, that knows our situation, that knows everything about us, that knows the meditations of our heart, that sees us in secret, that sees the intentions of our heart, that sees our situation and sees the outcome of it already, calls us and gives us the privilege to seek him in prayer and to spend time with him, which shows us that the goal of prayer is not to get what you want circumstantially. It's to spend more time and be more, develop more intimacy with God. That's the goal of prayer. It's not to get what I want. It's to conform my heart to the Lord's. It's to depend more on his grace. And we'll see that in Jesus's model prayer here. Um, are we seeking God so that we can get something from him or so we can get more of him? That's the goal of prayer. That we would seek God so that we could experience more of God. It's not about getting what we want. And then Jesus is gonna show us how we should pray. So if you look at verse nine, he says this. Pray then like this. And Jesus gives us an example or a model prayer. Now notice he says, pray like this. He doesn't say you have to pray this. He doesn't say it's a sin to not pray this. But this prayer should resemble, should serve as an example of our prayers. And this is what he says. He starts with our Father. And we shouldn't move any further past that. Like we should stop there and camp out there for a minute. Our Father, right? Before we start asking anything and requesting things, we should just stop and recognize that you and I, we get to call the God of the universe who holds the universe together by the word of his power, who spoke the world into existence. You and I, if you're in Christ, get to call him Father, right? This familial, Jesus would have used the Aramaic term Abba, but it's this intimate, familial, caring, loving, like the God of the universe. You and I have the opportunity through Christ that we can be called children of God and that we can call him Father, He loves us and he delights to hear from his children. Some of you parents will understand this. Um, Throughout the years, you know, at elementary school and other things like that, and just at home by an act of God, um, my siblings and I just, you know, randomly when your kids do something and they make something for you unsolicited, and it's like, here, mom, I just want to do this because I love you. And if it's like something, a craft they did, and it's a picture of them and, you know, some nice words on those kind of things. Like my mom lives for those things. Um, she still has some of those things when we were kids. If it was a Christmas ornament that we made with our little picture on it and how much we love her and those kind of things. And my poor dad, right? Like if our house was burning down and it was between those, that box of things and my dad, like he's on his own, right? Why? Because parents just love when their kids love them and unsolicited just want to delight in them and spend time with them. And the same is true with God. It's the same thing. He longs for you to want to spend time with him and commune with him and have an intimate relationship with him and be honest with him about where you are. And you and I have the opportunity to do that with our heavenly father, right? If we as evil earthly fathers know how to give good gifts to our children, how much more does our heavenly father who loves us know how to give better gifts to us? When your children ask for bread. You don't give them a stone, right? Our heavenly father wants to give us and delights to give us good gifts. He does. 
And we have the opportunity to call him father. It's this personal and loving term. And then he says this, though. And then he says, your memorization translation may say, who art in heaven. Um, he says, in heaven here, right? And he's not just describing the current whereabouts of God, right? Dear God, who is currently residing in the heavens. Um, he's not saying that. What he's talking about here is God's authority. That yes, God is all personal and intimate and caring, but he's also all powerful and has authority over all of the heavens and all of the earth. Um, Dwight Eisenhower's son, John, wrote a book, and in his book, he describes this time where he remembers that his dad as president um, was talking and suddenly 3,000 men just stood at attention. And that was the moment he realized that this is not just my daddy, right? That this man has authority. And you and I, we need to realize that. If we move into and enter into prayer, realizing that God is so personal and so intimate with us and cares so much about um, our anxieties and the burdens of this life and the cares of this world and the things we're going through, and he has all authority over heaven and earth, it changes the way in which we approach him in prayer, right? It humbles us immediately. But more than that, it should increase our confidence in prayer. That if we take a minute before we start praying and, and remember that God can do anything he wants, he has authority to do whatever he pleases. If you have a concordance in your Bible or a software where you can look up words in the Bible, search for oops or search for my bad, right? Like you don't find it. It's not in there. God does whatever he pleases and everything he does is perfect. His will is good and pleasing and perfect. And when we know that and we know how much he loves us and delights in us, it should humble us as we pray, but it should also increase our confidence as we pray. Instead of us throwing up these like maybe prayers, like, hey God, you know, if you really want to, or if you think about it, if you could happen to do this, right? No, like we can run like a child. Does your child give you some maybe requests? when they want something? No, that we can just run to him and say, God, this is how I'm feeling. This is what I'm struggling. This is where I feel like you're not there. This is where I wanna see more of you in my life. And we can just run to him like a child runs to his father with full confidence that he cares and that he wants to move and will move and will answer this prayer in some way in his perfect and good and pleasing will. But it changes our approach to God when we stop and we remember that he has fatherly love and heavenly power. And his fatherly love for us and his, directs him to do whatever he wants to do and his heavenly power enables him to do all that he wants to do. It changes the way in which we pray. And then he says this, hallowed be your name. Uh, quick poll. How many of you know what the phrase hallowed be your name means? Um, my hand would have been up four days ago. Uh, if you look at the original language, um, this word hallowed is not a, or hallowed be is kind of the phrase. It's not an adjective. Um, so he's not saying like awesome is your name or hollow is your name, uh, which is kind of what it sounds like. He's not describing an adjective to God's name. <clears throat> this is actually in the Greek tense, it's a command. Now, Theologically, we call this a soft command because it's just weird for us to command God to do anything. These next three requests are gonna be commands. 
but we can't necessarily command God to do things. But you see the urgency and the charge or the, the begging, the pleading that he is requesting God to do. So what he's saying here, the word hallowed um, means um, to cause, to, to, to be treated as holy, to be treated as uh, or revered as holy. So this request here is <clears throat> God, my heavenly father who loves me and delights in me, <clears throat> who has all power to do whatever he wants, and then he moves into this request, God, make your name great. It's not an adjective. God, your name's awesome. It's no, God, make your name great. Make your name great in my own life. Make your name great in my heart. Make your name great in my kids' lives. Make your name great in my home. Make your name great in this church. Like that's his number one priority. God, make your name great in all the earth. We know that at the end of the story, if we've read the end of the book, that every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and God has exalted him to the name that is above every name. But as believers, we want more of that now. I want more of that in my life. God, there are so many areas of my sinful, wicked heart where your name is not great. Your name is not preeminent in my life. So many times my prayer is about my name not his name. And Jesus calls us, this model prayer for us is to start with, God, make your name great in this earth. Make your name great in my life. Make your name great in my home. And then he moves into another command. Your kingdom come. It's not just like a blanket statement. Like, here's a factual statement. God, your kingdom will come, is coming. Like, he's not saying that. He's, God, bring your kingdom in my life. God, I want more of your rule and more of your reign in my heart. That's what he's asking for. God, I want more of your rule and your reign in my home. I know my heart. And there are so many areas of my heart where God is not ruling and reigning. God, I want more of that in my own life. God, bring your kingdom in my house. Help us to submit to your rule and to your reign. Bring your kingdom in this church. I want more of your mercy and more of your grace. I'm a rebel, and in so many areas of my life, I don't submit to my king. And God, bring your kingdom in my life. Make your name great in my life and in my heart, in my home, and bring more of your kingdom in my heart and in my home. That's his priority. And then he says, make your name great, make your rule and reign expand on this earth, and then your will be done. It's in the imperative. God, do what you want to do. Not what I want to do. Do what you want to do. But man, do my prayers on average sound like they are for the benefit of my name and my kingdom and my will. And how does Jesus start? God, make your name great. Bring your kingdom in my life and on this earth and make your will be done. Your desires, your heart, your plan, not mine. Now imagine if we just started there in our prayer life, right? That would change everything. And it shows us the goal of prayer, like I said, is, is not to, to, to say the right words and do the right things and go through the right motions so that you'll get the answer that you want. No, the goal of prayer is, God, I want more of you. And whether you give me that thing or not, God, I want more of you. I said this last week about giving, but praying is the same way. I could pray for health today, and God could give me cancer tomorrow. 
And God is no less kind or no less gracious to me than he's ever been. Why? Because he's given me the gospel. And in the gospel, I have something far greater and more valuable and more eternal than anything that this life could give me or that death could take from me. So the goal of prayer, and we're gonna get to it in a minute. Yes, there's room in this prayer for you to ask and bring your request to the Lord. Like that's totally appropriate and fine. And we'll talk about that. But our priority should be, God, I just want more of you. I want more of your name in my life, more of your fame in my life, more of your kingdom in my life, more of your rule in my life, more obedience to you in my life, and more of your will in my life. And if that means circumstantial success, great. If that means trial and you'll use that to make your name great in my life, great. But God, I want more of you. Do you see that? That's the goal of prayer is more intimacy and more honesty and more communion with God. Not my name, but your name. Not my kingdom, your kingdom. Not my will, but your will. And then he gets into supplication. And I want us to see this. He says, give us this day our daily bread. Now, this is kind of a a stand-in. All commentators agree that this isn't the only thing you're allowed to pray for, is bread, right? This is the kind of the the stand-in for this is where you ask for what you need. This is where you ask God for your needs and the things that he's put on your heart, your desires, right? You ask for these things. But notice where it fits, right? God, I want your name to be made great. I want your kingdom and your rule and your reign to be in my life. I want your will to be done in my life. And as you're doing those things, give me what I need, right? Give me more of your grace. Give me more of your patience. Give me exactly what I need as you're doing those things, as you're making your name great, as you're establishing your kingdom in my heart, as your will is being done. Um, I didn't share this with the first service, but I mentioned a few weeks ago, we've been reading The Hiding Place. And um, in the book, um, Corey Tim Boom <clears throat> is talking to her father about all these different things and um, getting into some weighty matters. And she's talking about um, the fact that her aunt had passed away. And she's on a subway with her dad and she's asking her dad um, about the strength to, to deal with death. Like, how, do, how are you able to have strength in that moment? Like, I don't, and she's, you know, this young girl, she's like, I don't, I'm not gonna, I'm not ready to die. I don't have the strength to be ready to die right now. And her dad, um, in probably Holy Spirit-given wisdom, says, um, pulls out his ticket to the subway and says, you know, when I give this to you, when do I give this ticket to you? I don't give it to you a week ago, right? I give it to you the moment that you're about to get on the train, right when you need it. And he says, that's how God works, that in the moment that you need a gift, he gives it to you right then, right when you need it, just like I gave you this ticket. When you get to the situation where you need something from God, he'll be faithful to give it to you right in that moment. And that's the heart of prayer. Lord, I want more of that in my life. God, I want more faith, more trust, more dependence on you in my life. That you would give me exactly what I need, give me my daily bread as you're establishing your rule in my heart and your fame of your name in my heart and in my home. God, give us what we need. But at the same time, you can pray for anything. In fact, look at the other scriptures in the Bible that talk about prayer. Philippians 4, if you want to know the most searched verse over the last three years running, it's Philippians 4, 6. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, through prayer and supplication, in everything through prayer and supplication, submit your request to God, right? That we can pray to God about everything. 
Ephesians 6, pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, keep on praying always that we can pray for all of the things, the the anxieties. This isn't a sermon on Philippians 4, but I love the passive kind of tense of that verb where Paul says, um, be anxious for nothing, but in everything through prayer, let your requests be made known to God. So that as you and I, as you get anxious about things, we're going through real situations, right? We're going through disease and diagnosis and you know, health issues. Like I said, we had someone in our body lose a, a parent this week. Uh, like Life is hard. We live in this broken world. Wayward children, the whole thing. As anxiety creeps up, and I love the passive tense of that. Boy, do we love to, in our human nature, suppress those, right? As those anxieties come up, stuff them down, push them down, right? Find something else to numb the pain of those things. I don't wanna think about those things. Let me get my phone, more social media, more distraction, more, net, more other things, more work. I just don't wanna deal with this, right? But what does Paul say? As those anxieties come, let them be made known. Like, let them out. They want to come out. They're coming to the surface. Quit pushing them down. Let them out. And then just keep pressing them upward to God, right? Let them be made known. And then just keep pushing them up to God. And God will give you peace as you do those things. As you take those things to God, he will give you his peace and his comfort. He'll remind you of his promises. He'll remind you that he loves you, that he's in control, that he is establishing his kingdom, that he is making his name great, that he is doing what he desires, right? But this is what Paul and Jesus is getting after. But there's two extremes when it comes to our supplication that I want to guard us from. And this is just for our own prayer, health, and those kind of things. One of those, when it comes to supplications, you may be in this camp, and I've been in this camp before. It's, God's so big, I'm so small. God doesn't care about this little stuff in my life. He doesn't care. Like, I'm not gonna pray about this stuff. Like, it's it's tiny. Like, God's holding the world together by the word of his power. Why does he care about what I'm stressed about tomorrow, right? And that could not be further from the truth. First Peter, cast all your anxieties on all your anxieties on him. Why? For he cares for you. God intimately cares. He's all powerful, but he is all personal and cares about every anxiety that hits your heart and your radar. So don't fall in this camp where I'm not going to give any supplication to God. It's too small. It's too trivial. No. But then there's this other camp where we are so consumed and our prayer life is so consumed with just the things that we want. God, I want you to do this and I want you to stop doing this and do more of this and quit doing that and I need some more of that and keep me safe from here to there and those kind of things that we stop praying for God's fame and his name and his kingdom and his will in our lives. You see the difference? We don't wanna go all the way over here where we don't say anything, we don't pray anything because we don't think God cares, but we don't wanna go all the way over here where we stop praying about what matters most and we just start giving God our to-do list. There's a middle ground and that's what Jesus is getting at. God, make your name great, make your kingdom come, make your will be done, and then give me what I need. Here's the things that I'm carrying right now. God, I wanna give these burdens to you. Give me more of yourself as I'm navigating these things. Give me wisdom to navigate these things. And boy, will God answer those prayers. And then he says this, forgive us of our debts as we've also forgiven our debtors. And I love that, that it comes right after our daily bread. Like, give us what we need and then forgive us, right? Um, forgiveness is just like bread is to the body. Forgiveness is to the soul. 
We just need it. And if you're in Christ, Jesus isn't advocating here that if you sinned, that you're not saved anymore or anything like that. Your sins cannot separate you from God. If you're in Christ, he's paid for your sins, past, present, and future. But our active daily sin, it doesn't separate us from God, but it does affect our intimacy with God. Just like your daily sins horizontally with other people. If you had no forgiveness and no reconciliation in your horizontal relationships, marriages wouldn't last very long, would they? Ah, we're married, right? Like, I know I hurt her, but it's not gonna make us less married. Might as well just move on, not own it, not say sorry, right? Like, we need forgiveness for intimacy's sake. And it's the same thing vertically. We're not instantly unsaved when you sin, but boy, does our sin um, discourage and hinder our intimacy with God. So like John the Baptist says in Matthew 3, we produce fruit in keeping with repentance, that we regularly repent to God and we regularly repent to one another as we sin. We regularly confess. And this is what Jesus is getting at. And then he says this, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, um, we know from James 1 verse 13 that God cannot tempt us, does not tempt us. Um, but at the same time, we know that if you look at Matthew 3, I believe, Jesus gets baptized and the Holy Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted. Holy Spirit doesn't tempt Jesus. God doesn't tempt Jesus. But he leads him into a trial. And we know that with trial comes temptation. That when you're stressed, when you're burdened, when you've got this sudden expense, when you've got this family crisis, when you've got this situation you didn't plan for, Temptation sneaks right on in, doesn't it? To be short with people, to be rude with people, to not honor your word, to lash out at people, whatever it is. And the prayer here is, God, please, right? Don't lead me into those trials. Don't lead me into those situations. But even if it's your will that you do, deliver me from evil, right? Praise God that in the gospel, 1 Corinthians, that no temptation has seized us except what's common to man. And God's faithful that when we're tempted, he will provide a way out so that you and I can stand up under it, right? That we don't have to give in to temptation by the Holy Spirit in us. We can resist temptation. So God, my prayer, like the goal is not for you to go wake up and go looking for temptation, right? Our prayer is, God, please don't lead me into that. But if you do, deliver me from evil. Deliver me from the evil one. Give me the power. Give me exactly what I need when I need it to resist temptation. And then he says this in verse 14, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others your trespasses, neither will your father forgive you of your trespasses. And I wanna be clear, this verse, the wording can sound really confusing. Jesus is not saying that you have to earn God's forgiveness by forgiving others. In fact, he's saying the telltale sign that you have been forgiven by God is that you forgive others, right? The telltale sign that you recognize how big your offense is to God of your sin and that he's paid it is that you're a person that forgives offenses of other people. It's the, the log and the speck, right? The plank and the speck in the eye. That as believers, we should constantly view other people's sin as a speck and we should view our sin as a plank. But boy, do we skip those, right? We love to exaggerate the sins of others and minimize the sins in us, don't we? We justify our sin, we minimize it. Oh, I mean, yeah, I'm greedy, and but I mean, look at what they're doing, right? 
We love to put ranks and scores on people's sins. And Jesus says, no, no, no. If you truly are one of my children and you truly recognize the debt that your sin occurred to a holy God and that it's been wiped clean, paid in full, then when someone offends you compared to what he's forgiven me of, yeah, you're forgiven, right? Why? Because I've been forgiven from something so much greater. And that's the sign that you're one of his children is that you're a forgiving person. That you're willing to forgive other people of their debt because boy, has Jesus Christ forgiven you of a significantly greater debt. And my sin is a plank and your sin is a speck. And if I start viewing my sin as a, as a plank and your sin as a speck and you start doing the same thing, your sin is a plank and my sin is a speck, boy, would we have more reconciliation and more forgiveness in this Christian community, wouldn't we? But we love to downplay ours and elevate somebody else's. And then he talks about fasting. And I wanna say this about fasting. Um, <clears throat> John Stott essentially has this quote where he says, it's almost like Christians today um, have ripped this page out of their Bibles or ripped this section out of their Bibles. Um, there is an expectation that you and I would fast in the scriptures. Jesus doesn't say, if you happen to fast, he doesn't say, you know, when you think about it, he says, whenever you fast, like there's an expectation that you and I would fast. And according to scripture, I mean, we even named one of our meals fasting, right? Breakfast, it's, it's breaking the fast of not eating for a significant period of time the night before. Like it, it's, it's, it originally was designed to break a fast. Um, and fasting is essentially giving up of food. I mean, in our culture, we've kind of translated it to giving up of other things. But biblically, it's to give up food, give up physical nourishment to create more intimacy and more dependence on God for a short time, long time, however you would like to do it. But I would encourage you to participate in this. Um, I could give you lots of examples. I'll send you the notes if you want, for, but for the sake of time, um, in the Old Testament, fasting is associated with repentance. We see this in Nineveh. When they finally get the message from Jonah, they repent and they call for a fast. Fasting is also associated with asking God for a specific request. If you have a specific prayer need in our body this morning, I would encourage you to fast. We see Esther do this. Before Esther is about to go and risk her life talking to the king, what does she do? She gets Mordecai and she, she instructs him to get the people together and they call for a fast so that God will hear their prayers and will move on their behalf. And then she and the maids get together and they fast. And then lastly, fasting in the Bible, um, even in the New Testament, is closely related to us just growing in our own self-control and our self-discipline. Um, it is easy for me to look at you and tell you that I have self-control, but if I can't say no to the Reese's on the coffee table at night, then I'm fooling myself, right? And this is what Paul, and I'll read it to you in just a second, is getting at. Like you don't have self-control if, if you, you're, or you're deceiving yourself if you can't even say no to the simple desire of hunger, right? You think you have self-control and self-discipline in your life? When there's this temptation for, of a sweet tooth or whatever, if I don't have the, and it doesn't mean you always have to say no, I'm not saying that. What he's getting at is the ability, like the, the, the en enough personal discipline that, well, you know what, I can say no to that, and I know I can't. There's an issue in 1 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10 um, where the issue is about food sacrificed to idols. 
And the problem is the Corinthian church is writing to Paul like, hey, these, this food looks really good and it was sacrificed to these pagan gods. Like, are we allowed to eat it? And Paul, you know, the long and short of it is he's like, yeah, you can eat it. You, you know, it's, that means nothing. Like it's food. You can, you can eat it. But he says this, if it causes other people to sin, if it causes people to doubt, if it creates some conflict in the body of believers, you have to have enough self-control to say no to your desire to eat that stuff for the sake of the gospel. You have to be self-controlled enough to do that. And this is kind of his summary statement. He says this in 1 Corinthians 9. He says, do you not know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I don't run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but here's what he says. I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. So Paul says, in order to run well, I fast, I discipline my body so that for the sake of the gospel, if I have to say no to a desire, I have enough self-control to say no to it for the sake of the gospel. So I don't know where you are this morning, but I would encourage you to make fasting a semi-regular, seasonal, I mean, I don't wanna play the Holy Spirit. As he directs you, especially be obedient. But if you have a specific prayer request, if you have a specific sin that you can't, find victory over, or if you just feel like, hey, I would love more self-control and self-discipline in my life, then I would encourage you to try fasting as the Holy Spirit leads and say, you know what, God, I care more about being dependent on you than I do about giving in to this desire to eat today. I care more about you working in my life than I care about this next meal. And just give it a try. And if you're a member here at High Point or a partner, I don't want to be a prophet here, but there will be opportunities in our body where if there's a major need or a crisis or something that we might call the entire church body to fast together. And that's totally fine. And it won't be mandatory or anything like that, but it's a great opportunity for us to gather together and say, you know what, God, we care more about what you're doing in this person's life than we do about this next meal, right? So if you are looking for a way to grow in your self-discipline or self-control, I would say try fasting. But don't do it to be noticed by others because that's what Jesus is getting at in this next section is the Pharisees would fast and would you know, disfigure their faces so that other people would see that they're fasting and win their praises. And Jesus said, no, 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 this is a private discipline for more dependence on God and his grace in your life. Um, I wanna end this way, um, talking about prayer. Um, do you know the one time in all of the Bible where Jesus calls his father, calls God, God. All the times in the New Testament, Jesus calls God his father, except for one. And the one time that he doesn't is on the cross. Why? At the cross, Jesus doesn't call God father because he was cast out of the family so that you and I could be brought in. And that's the gospel. At the cross, Jesus was treated like us, Jesus was treated the way we deserve to be treated, as a rebel, as a sinner, and he was cast out of the family. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me so that you and I could be called sons and daughters of God, freely given his righteousness and his holiness through the cross and through the resurrection? And what's also so fascinating about that prayer, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, is God doesn't answer it. Why? At the cross, God refuses to answer that prayer so that he could answer yours and mine. 
that Jesus was treated like a sinner. Isaiah 59, verse two, your sins have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear your prayers. That at the cross, Jesus was treated like us. And God did not acknowledge his prayer. Why? So that he could hear and come to our rescue and spend time with us in prayer. That's why. We pray because of the gospel. We have this privilege to seek God in prayer only because of the gospel. And the good news about the gospel is the Father already knows what we want in prayer. Jesus is interceding for us as we pray and the Spirit is groaning with us And because we don't know how to pray as we should, that the Spirit is praying along with us so that as you and I pray, because of the gospel, the Trinity is literally praying with us. God knows what we want. He governs what we want. The Spirit groans with us and Jesus is interceding at the right hand of the Father for our prayers because of what he's done on the cross. It is a blood-bought privilege that you and I have to call God Father and to take our needs to him. So let's be a church and let's be a people that do that on a regular basis. And as we respond this morning, we're not gonna do something super weird or spiritual or out there. I'm just gonna give you a minute to pray. And you can pray. The Holy Spirit can lead you however you want. It can be a, God, this is the first time in a long time. It can be a, God, I need to confess. God, I need to lift up this burden. God, I want more of your name and your fame in my life. It can be any of those things. But we all need a little more prayer in our lives. If I'm honest, we all need a lot of more prayer in our lives. So take a minute as we respond and just pray. And then after about a minute is up, the band will lead us in a response. Um, But take a minute before, and let's pray. I'll pray for you as you start. Lord, hear our hearts. God, thank you that you already know. So God, I pray that we would continue to be a people who run to you, who seek you. God, not to get more things, but to commune with you. So God, meet with us. Draw near to us as we draw near to you. In Jesus' name.